If you uh, have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 14. And if you don't have a Bible, oh, kids, youth, you guys are out with Pastor Tosh. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we would love you to have one. So raise your hand and one of the guys will come down the aisle and uh, give you one to use. So we've got one over here. Rick, somebody, a couple people that need Bibles over here. We'll get them Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible of your own at home, we would love you to swing over to the info kiosk and we'll give you a special, yeah, raise your hands. We've got some Bibles coming down the aisles. We'd love to give you a Bible just as a gift from the Lord. And we would love you to become best friends with that Bible and to come uh, become best friends, of course, with the author of it. So Matthew chapter 14 this morning. Last week, you'll remember. We finished up in chapter 13. Jesus had shared with us this series of parables, and he was describing and he was detailing for us kind of the course of the kingdom, we called it. What we could expect as we're out laboring and as we're ministering for him. And as we ended our time together last time, we remember after powerfully proclaiming those seven sort of packed parables. Remember, Jesus traveled back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he was rejected there, we remember, by his neighbors. And our final verse last time, in verse 58 of chapter 13, it said that he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, personally, in and of itself, this is kind of a startling statement, and it's worthy of some consideration maybe at a different time, but just in that sense that we have the ability to limit the work of the Lord through our own unbelief, right? through our own hardness of heart. So that's something I think that, that we should ponder on, but chronologically, in that statement, we see this connection between the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth and the text that we turn to this morning. It's going to deal with the death of John the Baptist. And though his death had actually occurred, Matthew's going to provide us with some more detail here because it helps to illustrate this growing rejection, kind of the mounting momentum, if you will, in the minds of men against the king. And of course, we know that ultimately that would lead to the cross. And here, by killing the messenger they were rejecting the king. And in addition, in our text this morning, I think we're going to see kind of a, a, a classic case study, if you will. It's a personal tragedy of rejection and of rebellion. And yet we're also going to consider the remedy, of course, for this kind of a very sad condition. So let's just pray quickly and just ask the Lord to open our eyes and bless his word. Father, we thank you for this, uh, for this text, Lord, as difficult, as challenging as it may be, Lord. We know that it's here for a reason and that you want to speak to us through it, Lord. We pray you would do that today. We pray for open ears to hear what your spirit would say to us each personally and to us as a church collectively. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You remember in the letter to the Hebrews, right, in the sixth chapter, you see the author encouraging this group of struggling converts to Christianity from Judaism. And he exhorts them to press ahead in this newfound faith that they have in Jesus. He encourages them not to succumb to those who were calling them away from the simplicity of the cross and back into a religion of self 
effort. And to do this, as you Bible students know, he uses the example of Abraham. He talks about the way that the Lord poured out his blessings on him based on his word to him. And he writes in verse 18 of chapter 6, he says that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. You know, God's promises to us through Christ truly do become the anchor for our souls. And without that anchor, or when it's what I'm calling anchors away, as we'll see here this morning, we're subject to drift off course and we're subject to suffer spiritual shipwreck. And yet, when we're anchored deeply in Jesus, when we're anchored in his word, anchored in those promises to us, we can be safe. You know, we can be quite unlike this susceptible soul that we're going to look at together today. Look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 14. It says that at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. So here the fame of Jesus spreading all around, right? All the way to the ruler of the region of the Galilee, who was Herod the Tetrarch. Now the title Tetrarch just means a ruler of the fourth part, right? He shared in the governing of a portion of the nation of Israel under Rome. So this name Herod Right, should sound familiar because the Herod family looms large in all four of the gospel accounts and on into the book of Acts. It's very easy to confuse all of the various rulers. Now, this is Herod Antipas, right? He's one of the sons of the original Herod the Great who founded this dynasty. We remember Herod the Great from Matthew chapter 2. He was the one that killed all of the Bethlehem babies when he heard that a new king had been born. Of Herod the Great, it is said that he was a heathen in practice and a monster in character. And what we see is that none of the rest of the Herods fell too far from that tree. So our Herod today, right, Herod Antipas, wasn't quite as bloodthirsty as his father was, and yet as we'll see in our text, he was very ambitious to become a great ruler, but he wasn't a great leader in any sense of the word. Right? He was a man who loved luxury. He lived licentiously, and his life for us is a tragic warning I think of these various voices that like fierce winds of a storm can so easily blow us off course, right? All of these voices that compete for our attention and sometimes they dictate our direction. And what we're going to see is that Herod was vexed by them, right? He was tossed, tormented relentlessly, kind of like a, a dinghy, if you will, in the middle of a storm. And so often... And of course it's true, but so often we see him as a villain, and yet I don't want us to forget this morning, in a sense, he was also a victim, right? He was a victim of Satan's destructive strategies because he wasn't anchored in the word of God. 
So this poor man, right, he'd heard of all of these miraculous things that Jesus was doing. He'd heard of the way that he was preaching so powerfully, and he'd heard about the crowds that were following him constantly. And it says in verse 2, he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Now the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that, of course, being second cousins that Jesus and John the Baptist looked remarkably similar. And yet much more likely, confronted with this work that was happening of God, Herod immediately assumes that it's the ghost of the dead John the Baptist. And the reason he assumed this was because the voice of his own superstitions had gotten the best of him. Right now, it's easy for us to kind of write off superstition as something that just belongs to history, right? Where belief in the occult and, and the power of pagan practices, they were kind of used oftentimes by the ignorant to explain away things that they didn't understand. And yet, of course, in our evolved and enlightened contemporary society, we certainly are not subject to being superstitious like that, right? And yet... We think of how many people still follow you know, horoscopes and astrology charts. We think about all the different false religious systems, all of the philosophies that are having such a tremendous influence in our modern culture. And the fact is that the human race is basically superstitious at heart. Because we're looking for any sort of answers, any kind of explanations, wherever we can possibly find them. Because the truth is that the minute you get away from the word of God, you become superstitious. Because you have no anchor, you have no foundation. We see today that even those who would call themselves atheistic are starting to turn to cults and borrow practices from the isms and the different pagan influences. And we sit back and we marvel that intelligent people could become so involved in those kinds of things and steeped in this kind of man-made philosophy. And yet, what does Paul tell us? Paul writes to the Colossians that we need to beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men or the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So I truly believe this morning that our hearts should break for those who are all around us, right, at work and at school and, uh, you know, on the streets, those who are stuck in these kinds of thought systems that are cheating them, Paul says, out of life in Christ. It's that voice of superstition. And that's what here had led Herod to think initially something supernatural, right? John the Baptist has come back from the dead. And as we read further, what we're going to find is that it actually was the voice of his conscience that was really pricking him here. Because remember, he was the one who had put poor John the Baptist to death. And so now to, to kind of illustrate and expound on this, Matthew now kind of inserts a bit of backstory of what had actually happened between John and Herod. Verse 3 and 4, it says, For Herod 
had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now, in reading these two verses, what we see here is that this is where Herod's story kind of goes from sad to sick. Okay, Because John had publicly condemned Herod, who was living with Herodias, who just happened to be, what, his sister-in-law. Right? She had been his brother Philip's wife until Herod took a liking to her, seduced her, got rid of his own wife, and then stole Herodias from his brother. So here's John saying, hey, this isn't right. You know, much more so, you're the ruler of this region. You're in this position of authority. You can't live in this kind of immorality. You're going to bring judgment down upon the people. And Herod responded, how? By imprisoning the bold, the radical John the Baptist. And from the language here, we get the sense that this wasn't just a passing remark that John made once. The word said there in verse 4 is in what they call the imperfect tense, which means it was indicating something that was continuing. So this was a continuing campaign by John speaking out against Herod. He was righteously standing up for righteousness. He was continually speaking out against this sinful lifestyle. And yet for Herod, the voice of immorality here won out. Right? He wanted what he wanted. No one was going to tell him otherwise. And yet I actually believe as we look at this, it was a lot more than just his desire to live in this sinful lifestyle, that the voice that he also gave into here was that very familiar voice of fear. Fear of Herodias. Now, notice it says there that he put John in prison. Why? For her sake. It was one of these old school preachers who I read this week said this. Said that she ruled him at her pleasure as Jezebel did Ahab. But it never goes well when the hen crows, he wrote. Now, I'm not going to touch that one with a 10-foot pole here today. I'll let you talk about that at home. But make no mistake, Herodias was certainly no innocent victim here. This infamous woman was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Her first marriage, as we said, was with Herod Philip, who also happened to be her uncle. Explain to me how that works. But we'll see in just a few verses this woman was a gale force wind to be reckoned with. And so it seems for her sake, Herod just wanted to make this Baptist thorn go away. And although it says in verse 5, he wanted to put him in death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. So not only did Herod feel Herodias, fear Herodias, but he feared the people as well. Because the people looked at John as some sort of a successor to that Old Testament line of prophets. And so Herod kept him alive in prison for fear of the multitudes. So here, Herod was like so many people today. They feared the opinion of people instead of seeking after the blessing of God. Right In Proverbs 24, it says that the fear of man brings what? A snare. Right? But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. 
And just briefly, it's kind of sad at this point to consider that the only thing that kept Herod from here doing even greater wickedness was the fear of man. And what's interesting is that Mark, in his companion account of this account, tells us that while John was in prison, that Herod would occasionally talk with him. He began to develop sort of an affinity for him. In Mark chapter 6, verse 20, it says that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So Herod was glad to hear John and to, to, speak, to hear him speak and share the things of God. No doubt, I believe, he realized that John was a man much unlike himself. He was a man of integrity. And Herod saw that and he respected John the Baptist. And the reason is that so much of what John shared had to resonate somewhere deep within Herod, right within his spirit. In fact, that phrase there in verse 20 of Mark 6, it can be translated, did many things can actually be translated that he was in a state of perplexity. And the sense here is that when Herod heard John, he was perplexed, right? He was caught between these two voices. He was convicted in his spirit by the things that John shared, but he just couldn't give himself over to that truth, right? Instead, he was hardening his heart. He was searing his conscience. Think about this. Herod heard the greatest prophet who God ever sent and yet refused to submit himself to the word of God. And there's a great warning as well as an exhortation in this here for us to be open and to be responsive when we each hear the Lord really speaking to our hearts. It says in the book of Hebrews that today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in, as in the rebellion. In Proverbs 28, it says, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So if there's an area of your life about which you feel the Lord has been speaking through his word to you, don't delay, right? Repent today. I like that. Don't delay. They were saying we need new t-shirts for the church, so maybe don't delay, repent today. Maybe those... Those might not sell, but the, the sad truth here is that just a year from now, when Jesus would stand before Herod Antipas again, what we'll notice is that the Son of God refuses to even speak to him. We see Herod repeatedly asking questions of him, and Jesus won't even speak to him. And it's a picture of this reality that Herod had once and for all silenced the voice of God. Herod is someone, as we're going to see, who wasted all of his God-given opportunities. So here, in just a couple verses, we have Herod, right? He's scared of superstition. He's guilty of guile. He's living a lifestyle that's immersed in immorality. He's in fear of his wife. He's in fear of the multitudes. He's fighting against his conscience. He's rejecting the things of God, right? That ministry of the Spirit through the Word of God. And at this point, I have to say, 
my heart breaks for this man. It absolutely breaks for him. And watch what happens, right? Because it's in the midst of this kind of perfect storm of sin that we see the stage has been set for the big event. Look at verse 6. It says, But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. And therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So poor Herod was caught in a net that had been set by his loving Herodias, who we still, we know, still hold, held this grudge against John. Again, we jump over to Mark chapter 6, verse 19. It said that Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. And then in verse 21, it says that then an opportune day came. When Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee, right? This was an opportune day for her to have her revenge on John. And so she plotted to have her teenage daughter, Salome, perform this kind of a sensual dance at Herod's birthday feast, which apparently, sadly, it looks like Herod had to throw for himself, right? But Herodias knew her husband. She knew that he would succumb to her daughter's charms, that he would likely get carried away in the moment and make some sort of a rash promise to her. And sadly, Herod didn't even see it coming. Even though this was a situation that was incredibly out of the ordinary. One historian wrote, that the dances which these girls danced were suggestive and immoral. And for a royal princess to dance in public at all was an amazing thing. And we're told that this whole deal, it says there in verse 6, that it pleased Herod. And of course that word pleased gives the, carries the idea of giving pleasure or exciting emotions within someone else. And of course it worked. Right, so here with the, with the wine flowing freely right, and the daughter dancing seductively, Herod says, hey, whatever you want, right, up to half of my kingdom, you've got it. So here Herod had succumbed to those familiar voices of lust and of alcohol. Now, I don't want to spend our Sunday morning together talking about the dangers of unbridled lust or of alcohol abuse because all we need to do right is flip on the tv right or thumb through our news feeds or think about all of those that we know and we love think about lives even here this morning who live with the devastation and the lasting destruction that these kinds of things can bring right we have all of the examples that we need to encourage us and to exhort us to steer clear of these things of course, the Bible doesn't forbid drinking, but it does forbid drunkenness. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So very simply, if you struggle to drink without becoming drunk, then don't drink. Right? Now, the Bible speaks very clearly about the dangers of allowing our lusts and our, our sexual desires to take control of our actions. Right in Corinthians, it says we're to flee sexual immorality. 
and then points out that every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And we know all of these things, right? This isn't news to anybody. But this morning, I want us to imagine, I want us to understand all of those who are living around us. I want us to imagine Herod, those people who have no anchor, right? They live in a world of moral relativism and of good old-fashioned hedonism, right? Where everything goes, you know, everything rules, YOLO, you know, whatever, right? But they're just like spiritual sitting ducks. They're easy prey for Satan, who Peter tells us walks about like what? Like a roaring lion, just seeking whom he may devour. And these are the people These are the Herods, right, who are drifting, who are struggling with these vying voices. These are the very people that we are called to love. And these are the people that we are called to minister to and bring them the good news of the gospel, right? Minister to them that anchor of the hope that the word and that Jesus Christ provides to us. Because at this point, Herod was in a terrible spot. It's like Herodias is using Salome here to now tighten up the net. Verse 8, it says, So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. And nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. Herodias knew her husband. She knew the situation. She knew that she could get exactly what she wanted by just exploiting his weaknesses, right? Like most weak men, what Herod feared the most was being seen as weak by his friends. And she preyed on his fear of men as well as on his pride. And she preyed on his insecurities. And yet, isn't that exactly the way that our enemy always operates? Right? He knows our fears. He knows our weaknesses. And he knows just when to exploit them. Because notice, she was shrewd enough to demand that this thing be done when? Immediately. Not whenever you get around to it or whenever you think it, you know, immediately while the guests are still here at the party. More importantly, while he was still under the influence, right, uh, the voices of wine, right, the lusts that had been stirred up because she wanted to make sure that there was no time left for repentance. And so often it's when we feel rushed and pressured or under some sort of obligation, that's when we make bad choices. When we don't set our anchor in the word to tell us otherwise, we rush ahead because we're just driven by here and yet by fear. And yet in Isaiah 26, it says that you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. We need to wait on the Lord. We need to wait on his word. So whatever it is you're currently facing in your life, whatever fears you may be battling or whatever situation you feel is bearing down on you and demanding a decision of you, just stop. Right? Wait. 
Set your anchor, right? Trust the word. Don't trust those voices that are compelling you or those winds that you feel are driving you. And unfortunately, Herod did none of these things. And he rushed ahead. He acted in haste and in passion. In verse 10, so he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Sounds like hot potato almost, right? But here the, the deed has been done. And what a gruesome scene. Imagine, imagine Herodias gloating over her victory. Right here, like holding this speechless head of John on a platter, right? Thinking that she had finally silenced, you know, his mouth and his witness of righteousness against her. And yet we know that the voice of John continued to haunt both her and Herod's consciences right up until their tragic deaths. You know, one author considered Herod's crime against John and God and kind of wrote about the conviction of conscience that very likely he suffered for the rest of his life. And he wrote this. He imagined still that he saw and heard that holy head shouting and crying out against him, staring him also in the face at every turn. God hath laid upon evildoers the cross of their own consciences, that thereon they may suffer afore they suffer, and their greatest enemies need not wish them a greater mischief. The cross of their own consciences. That, I think, is such a powerful concept. And even in our own lives, that can either drive us either towards or it can drive us away from the Lord. You know, whenever you, those feelings of condemnation that we all suffer over our sin, those are always from the enemy. Feelings of condemnation drive us in shame and guilt further away from the Lord and usually deeper into our own sin. And yet feelings of conviction, right, those God-given, spirit-inspired kind of sense of our own failure, conviction always drives us where? right to the foot of the cross. It drives us back to the cross because we're seeking forgiveness and we're seeking restoration, right? You know, because Satan will always whisper those lies into our hearts, right? You've heard them. You know, you've done too much to ever be forgiven, he'll say. Or he'll say, you know, they'd never accept you if they knew X, Y, and Z. Or he'll say, you know what? You've done so much that you don't ever deserve to be happy. And yet the word of God, right, our anchor and our hope, the word of God promises forgiveness and it promises cleansing and it promises freedom from all of that guilt, freedom from a, a lifetime of carrying that burden. And we know of Herod in Luke chapter 23 when we see him again at Jesus' arrest, plagued, I'm sure, with this guilt growing over his treatment of John you'll notice he refuses to even pronounce judgment upon Jesus. Certainly because he fears even further condemnation. And history tells us that Herod had a terrible, terrible end. He lost all of his prestige and power, right? The father of his first wife, 
Remember the one that he put away because of Herodias? That guy just happened to be the king of a neighboring Arab kingdom to the east and was offended by what Herod had done and came against him with an army defeating him in battle. We know that Herod had made appeals to be officially made a king, no doubt urged by Herodias, but those appeals were refused by the Roman emperor Caligula. We also know that his own brother, Herod Agrippa, accused him of treason to the emperor, and Antipas was eventually deposed and sent into exile. He and Herodias were banished to this distant Roman province of Gaul. And that's the place where ultimately Herod and Herodias finally succumbed to the voice of the enemy once and for all and committed suicide together. Just sealing this lifelong rejection of God. And Mark asks the question, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Herod is remembered as this weak ruler. His only concern was for pleasure and for position. He never served the people. He just simply served himself. And like we said, he has the dubious distinction of being the man who killed the greatest prophet who had ever been sent to proclaim God's word. He went from bad to worse until he finally would die in his sins as a wretched victim of his own vices, all because he wasn't anchored securely. And yet we read in verse 12, then, speaking of John the Baptist, then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. So John the Baptist, on the other hand, he was honored by the disciples, right? The best way they knew how. He was honored in his whole life and his legacy. He had lived and he had died as this great and righteous man, right? His ministry was now completed. He had heralded, right? He'd announced the coming of the king. He'd faithfully preached God's truth. He was anchored in God. He was anchored in the things of God. He was anchored in the mission of God. He was anchored in the word of God. Of course, we're reminded last week in the example of Jesus, we see it again here this morning, that the world has rejected the king and, of course, will reject all of his earthly messengers. And yet, look what we see here. They will be rewarded for all of eternity. Because notice, in this verse, I think it's interesting, the Spirit is very careful to point out through the pen of Matthew that it was only the body of John that could be buried because his spirit is now free for eternity there in heaven with Jesus. And his testimony is this powerful voice even for us today. Charles Spurgeon said this, that the real John no man could bury and Herod soon found out that being dead, John yet spoke. His legacy lived on. Now, I will admit to you, it's been a morning, it's been a message filled with, with many and sometimes kind of mixed metaphors, right? We've got voices that are vying and winds that are blowing and anchors that are anchoring. We've got lions that are roaring. We've got nets 
that are tightening. And yet the point of all of these pictures is the same, that there are people who are hurting. And maybe even some people here in this room this morning, maybe that's even you today, because your life hasn't been anchored in the word and in the person of Jesus Christ like it could be. Now maybe it's you this morning and your life is anchored, right? And yet the winds continue to blow, right? The storm continues to rage. But if either one of these describes you this morning, let me encourage you, anchor down deeper, right, into the word. Allow the Lord to, to still the waters, right? Spend time together with him in the word every morning, right? Immerse yourself into the history of God's people and see his faithfulness to them, right? Encourage yourselves maybe at lunchtime in the Psalms. Go to bed, right? Meditating, rehearsing these precious promises that we find in the New Testament, considering your riches in Christ, and maybe there's even some here this morning who have never been anchored in the word, right? You've yet to be anchored in the Lord Jesus. And I think all of us would encourage you that you can do that today. That you can commit yourself to him. You can trust in him. You can be forgiven by him. You can anchor yourself securely to him no matter what it is you've done, no matter where it is you've been. Don't wait any longer, right? Hurting and, and hardening your heart like Herod and wasting another opportunity to come to faith and to find stability and to find security in him. Now, very quickly, as we close for the second time this morning, there was a song that, that the Lord, I think, brought to my remembrance this morning. It was written years back by Scott Cunningham, who's the worship pastor at Calvary, uh, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and the song's called Anchored Deep. And I remember years ago that some of the youngsters at church would razz me because I would play it every service in the playlist, both before and after the service. But it really spoke to me. And I hope you'll indulge me if I just read a couple of these verses to you. I was going to ask Kissy if she could play it today, but at five in the morning, I thought that was a little late to ask her to <laughs> learn a new song for us today. But here are the lyrics to the song. It says, I know you're with me. I know you're here. I love your presence as I draw near, but my heart deceives me. My feelings lie. Yes, they're always drifting with the ocean's tide. I hear you speaking, your word is clear. My heart rejoices as your love casts out my fear. I'm moving forward, I'm pressing on, and nothing moves me. You're the anchor to my soul. Yes, you're the anchor to my soul. And the chorus simply says, I'm anchored deep in your great love. I'm anchored deep in, your great, in who you are. I'm anchored deep in your holy word. I'm anchored deep in you, my Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for um, just providing us with that anchor for each of our lives, Lord. Providing us in the midst of um, all that we deal with, Lord. Providing us with um, 
stability and with peace and with rest, Lord. And um, I pray, Lord, this morning that you would break our hearts, Lord, for the Herods that are all around us and that we would truly see them, Lord, suffering the way that they must be suffering, Lord. Their lives may look perfect on the outside, Lord, and yet we know the turmoil that they're dealing with on the inside. And we pray you'd give us ears, Lord, and just eyes to see them, Lord, the way that you see them and to be moved with compassion for them, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, we pray you'd work these things in each of our lives, Lord. Help us to be anchored deep in you. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.